Hello, NSA. This is Jim Cathcart. Welcome to Voices of Experience. This month, we have some interviews for you from inside and from outside of the speaking profession. Our first interview is with a guy whose personal experiences will just make you say, wow. He has worked with Quincy Jones and with Michael Jackson. He's worked on half a dozen recordings with Quincy that led to one most noteworthy record by the name of Thriller, one of the best-selling albums of all time, where he not only worked directly with Michael Jackson, but developed a great relationship with him. I reached out to Matt Forger to find out what sort of life lessons and success strategies he picked up along the way from spending quality time around so many people with such mega success. He told me that he had worked directly with Michael Jackson for 15 years. So let's take a look inside his world and see what we can learn as speakers. I worked on about half a dozen albums with Michael. Every album I did, my album credit was titled something slightly different. I was a recording engineer, I was a technical engineer, I was a uh, production supervisor, uh, I, I wore a lot of different hats, but it all was part of that same thing. Uh, basically, I am a recording engineer, so that was yep. the basis for all of the other various... So, bottom line is, you're the guy who made this stuff sound good. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I was the guy behind the scenes, Yep. and of course on Michael Jackson projects, it's just not one guy, there's a team, yeah. so I was always a team member. I mean, sometimes I was doing sound design, yeah. sometimes you know, I was pushing the buttons, other times I was directing other people. And, and you sat shoulder to shoulder with him at the control panels for many hours. For years and years. Years and years, wow. You know, Michael was such a sponge in terms of wanting to learn and understand. I mean, this is obviously one of the reasons why he was so successful. Mm -hmm. But uh, not only that, his appreciation for those people who had had achieved something, had accomplished something in a creative sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, he studied. He studied everyone. One of his phrases was, study the greats and become greater. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that I have adopted as a, as kind of a mantra of, of you know how I want to move forward in my life, yeah. and I think it's it's inspiring. I've always been very inquisitive. I've always wanted to know how is it that things work, whether they were mechanical things or artistic, creative things. Mm -hmm. And this has been a desire to to understand. And the opportunity to be in a situation where I got to pick up some new skill or. Uh, understand some new thing was always something that I would I would jump at the opportunity to every to me every day every session everything that I uh, venture into is a new learning experience and and I approach it with that philosophy and it's amazing the experiences that you have and the lessons that you learn along the way because the things that you learn yourself as opposed to studying right going to a class or reading a book mm -hmm. I mean these things these life lessons you understand and your body gets them at a cellular yeah. level and it's embedded in your DNA. So these are the things that you never forget and that you carry with you always. The path on that my life has followed, uh, I did not at some early point in time say, this is specifically what I'm going to do and everything uh, about music and recording is something I'm going to uh, take on and study. I thought at one point in my life I wanted to be a mechanical engineer and design cars because mm -hmm. I loved automobiles. Mm -hmm. Then I went into fine art and I studied fine art for many years. So I've traveled through all of these different experiences. I've worked on cars and boats and airplanes. I've worked as an electrician, as a carpenter. I've remodeled houses. Mm -hmm. It's allowed me to design and build studios for people. So I find that all of this background information that it itself didn't lead to a particular career uh, has aided me in the path that I did choose because I understand science and physics and how everything works and when you understand the basic principles of how things mm -hmm. work then the other stuff just makes a little more sense and it makes the job a little easier. Yeah. Something I've noticed about you is that you are approaching the, the 
profession of speaking in the same way that you're describing here. You're a voracious student. You show up for for events. You enroll in, in uh, seminars. You, you get resources and study far beyond what would be expected of most people. You know, you're, you're taking the initiative at such a level that you can't help but succeed as long as you stay on this path. Well, life is short. You get one chance. <laughs> I mean, you get to a point where you understand there's so much to be accomplished. I don't want to waste time. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't want the diversions. I don't want the distractions. I want to enjoy those things for me that I know I will be able to enjoy when I get out there in the world. And uh, it, it, it's the reason why I got into music. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was very young, uh, when I lived back east before I moved to the West Coast, I listened to Van Halen records, and I said, these guys are having fun. Yeah. I can hear the fun these guys are having in the studio making this record. I want to I do that. I want to do something wow. in my life that I enjoy. I was blessed with that degree of sensitivity that I could hear those things in the recordings, mm -hmm. And maybe that's one another one of the reasons why I've been able to be successful is because I nurtured that, I studied that, I wanted to know how does that integrate into the process, into the creative process, into the mechanical and the technical process. Mm -hmm. uh, after I graduated from college and you know, and I had my fine arts degree, and I said, you know, I really want to do this thing. I want to mix. I was mixing live sound for uh, rock bands. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't afford the really good stuff, yeah. but I could. I, I, I got the catalogs. I got the brochures. Uh, I was looking at these things, and I said, you know, I can't afford to buy these things, but I can understand how to design them and build them. So I did that, and I would buy blown out uh, uh, speakers in, in high frequency compression drivers. And I would get them reconed. I buy replacement diaphragms. I build speaker cabinets. I design and build uh, horn flares, and I would put these things together. And then I had equipment as good as the best professional sound gear that was out there. But that was what I had to do because mm -hmm. one of the things my father taught me was, where there's a will, there's a way. And I was not going to allow something to prevent me from moving forward. And it got to the point where I had a fantastic sounding sound system that I used to mix live sound with. It was my own design and my own construction. I had it all the way down from 18-inch uh, W folded cabinet subwoofers all the way up to PZO super tweeters. And for me, it was like <laughs> I got to mix sound live. I had the best stereo system to play with. That of anyone that I knew and I designed it and I built it and I engineered it so it sounded fantastic and it was fun wow wow I love that and most of those things you mentioned people are saying a what you know but still we get it that you truly know your craft because you have from the ground up learned each element along the way and done by hand the things that you needed to do to acquire the skill that made you talented at a, at a higher level than you had been going into it. Well, that's another key thing, is when you get in at the ground level of anything that you want to pursue. When I started in a recording studio, I was a tech trainee. Mm -hmm. But I understood, I was taught how everything worked, the principles of all the equipment. I talked to guys that built studios yeah. so that I understood that principle of how the acoustics of a room work. So that I have that background knowledge so that if I get into a situation where someone is really getting serious about something that can or cannot be accomplished... I know when somebody's telling the truth or when they're fibbing a little bit about, no, that can't be done, I know the basic principles of whether or not something can or can't be accomplished. And if someone else can't accomplish it, then I know I can. I can step forward and I cre can create it. And I created recording studio situations for Michael Jackson many times when that was required of me. Mm -hmm. See, that, that kind of confidence only comes from having actually done it. And to bring this plane in for a landing so we can come back onto the speaker uh, runway. The, something I've always heard is that people will forgive bad video on a website, but they will not forgive bad audio. 
they've got to be able to hear you clearly, even if the video is lame. When we go into a speaking environment, we walk into a meeting room that was not necessarily designed for sound at all. It was designed for social functions. And sound was an afterthought. And visual and lighting was an afterthought in most cases. So what I want us to get is how much audio matters and how proactive we as speakers should be in helping control that to the extent we can without bringing in extra equipment on our own or something like that. The audio at an event is the vehicle by which the emotion you are presenting is conveyed. So the best quality that you possibly can attain and you're always at the mercy of uh, you know parameters that you're yeah. not in control of but I mean talk to someone who is experienced with the system because the guy who either maintains it or runs it is the guy who's going to know best how to optimize the sound uh, get in there early test it out test out the mic system hear for yourself if, if something doesn't sound right to you uh, is the person running it can you speak to him about can you equalize a frequency distribution so that the the bad stuff isn't there it's not too sibilant and tinny and you know there's not a low, lot of low rumble and your peas mm -hmm. aren't popping because these things can if someone knows what they're doing and they have the right equipment these things can be adjusted and filtered yep. and you know it's also nice that you want a very comfortable level it's, it's that you want to be as best prepared and those parameters that you can in some way influence make sure that they're optimized for you and your presentation Karen Jacobson brings a unique quality to VOE. She is the Australian voice on GPS and Siri. Her voice is in, are you ready, over 100 million devices around the world. She not only has made a career out of voiceover work, but a very successful one. Let's hear how she got started. I have been doing voiceovers for over 20 years professionally and... Starting in Australia. Starting in Australia yeah. and I really fell into it through singing. I'm a professional singer and grew up singing and writing songs and playing piano and that's my what I thought I would only ever do. Mm -hmm. So to have voiceover show up at the age of 21 and never leave was such a surprise and then to have things develop into a speaking business was again another surprise. Uh, but my parents do say that I started talking at nine months and never stopped. So I guess <laughs> I guess it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. But I have had this long career in voiceover. And when I moved to New York City, I was 31 years old. Mm -hmm. I'd had a lot of experience and a great career in Australia before I did move over to the United States. And I was sent to an audition by an agent. And the client was looking for a native Australian female voiceover artist living in the northeast of the United States. Wow. You nailed that one. I read that brief, and it's one of the few times in my life I thought, this job is mine. This is me. They've written a description of me. How many other people are going to be just like that and be able to do this job? So I went along to the audition, and I did get the job on the spot. And before I knew it, I was recording almost 50 hours of script to create a voice system that has ended up in over 100 million devices around the world. Wow. It, it again, takes my breath away to think of the scope of it because a lot of us have done voiceover in, in one form or another. You know, we've recorded a uh, announcement for a convention that's going to be shown with a video or we've done something in a radio studio or something like that. Yes. But it's, it's quite different when you actually cultivate a business based on doing voiceovers. Tell, tell us a little about that world. It is something that, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of detail to it. And often people will ask me, how do I get into voiceover? Yeah. And it isn't quite as simple. I mean, I, I had this incredible chain of events that I really did fall into it, mm -hmm. and, and it took off. And that is not common. Right. <laughs> you know, it was an unusual set of circumstances. And I think when people, especially in a market like New York City or Los Angeles, these days want to get into voiceover, it's a science. I mean, there is a yeah. lot 
to it. And all the movie stars have discovered it. That's right. Yeah, so so it's competitive on, on that level. So for the everyday voice person, there's a lot of competition with those celebrities now. It's For me, some of the major skills to have are being able to comprehend quickly. And I think that came from a childhood of being a voracious reader. So I was preparing myself for voiceover success Long without before. even knowing it. Uh-huh. And I had a number of the skills that are really required and very useful, but I didn't realize that they would be preparing me for that particular line of work. I think when you don't know what you're going to do, the best thing you can do is get ready for multiple options. Prepare yourself for whatever comes, you're going to have some fundamental underlying skills that'll allow you that flexibility. Yes. Because if you don't get ready before you know what the opportunity is, when the opportunity does arrive, it's not your opportunity. Mm. And this one was so your opportunity that it was absolutely, you know, one of those matches made in heaven. It was. Now, if a member of NSA wants to cultivate a business base doing voiceovers, where would they start? Goodness. They would probably start with listening to demo reels, which you can do do online, of existing successful voiceover artists. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, that is just, that's the advice I was given and it's the advice I give other people is you want to listen to the people who are being paid to do it on a daily basis and then find people you can really relate to, which is not dissimilar to the speaking business. You know, we mm-hmm. when we're starting out as a professional speaker, we like to look to mentors and to professionals who've been doing it for a long time and, and the greats and then see, well, who do I relate to most and who can I, you know, who can I yeah. emulate without copying but really learn from excuse me, to really Uh learn from. And that's what I would recommend. And the other thing that I suggest is every commercial you hear when you're driving along in your car and you might turn your GPS down momentarily uh, (laughs) and you're listening to the car radio and you're listening to the commercials or on television, copy everything you hear. Copy every crazy voice. If you're a female voice artist and you're hearing male voiceovers, copy those too. But you copy everything and get... I just, it's a good thing to get practiced at copying as you go, too. You hear a sentence, you, and you copy. It, when and you say on the copy, fly. you mean to to say it yourself, to make those say sounds, it out learn loud. to make those sounds yourself Ex- as opposed to exactly. you making say it, a copy of it. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. You say it out loud and you repeat everything that you're hearing, and it, it, it attunes the ear very quickly. That's something that I've gotten a kick out of over the years, and I haven't done it intentionally uh, enough to take it to the skill level, but I love doing accents and falling into a redneck accent or trying for an English accent or something that's non-native to me. And it's just, it's joyful. And I can see, you know, looking like an idiot, driving down the street, speaking to nobody, doing what's on the radio. But isn't that what so many of us have done to sharpen our skills? Yes. And I I did the same thing when I was starting out as a jingle singer. I would sing, well, I have to say I was doing that from a very young age when I was shopping with my mum in the supermarket. I was singing the jingles of the products as we went by. So Uh I was preparing for that for a long time too. But yes, to, to just completely repeat and copy and emulate the people who are doing it. And that is the it's it's free. It's a free way to learn. It's not you don't even need a class for that. And there is so much groundwork that can be done uh, without even taking your first class with a professional. Excellent. So if we go online and we start exploring voiceover, the the business of voiceover, find some examples of people that we can emulate, find some role models we can learn from and kind of follow their path as to how they develop that part of their world, then where do we make connections to get our toe in the water in in the voiceover world? Depending on the market that you're in, I think the same kind of networking that you would do on an everyday basis can be useful. So make sure everybody in your world knows that you are now available for voiceover. Good it's one. it's It really isn't brain surgery. It's straightforward, natural networking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, take the people in your life who know that you're a speaker and just let them know that you've now got a home studio set up or whatever it is you have 
available and that you're now recording telephone systems or if they have a, a commercial or if they have a recording they need for a video for their company that you're available for that as well. Thank you, Karen Jacobson. Karen is not only an articulate and creative presenter, she's also an accomplished singer-songwriter and has performed musically at our recent NSA conventions. Now, recalculating, let's go to our next feature. When it comes to the voice, that's an instrument that is vital to us as speakers. But it can be used in many ways that are better than the ways we learned in our normal learning process. Per Bristow works with singers and speakers from around the world to improve that instrument. And he's sharing what he learned today with the National Speakers Association. The voice is a really fascinating instrument. And of course, if we have voice problems, we know what that does to us. If we're going to present or if we get hoarse yep. or if we have a multi-day event and we're afraid that it's not going to happen mm -hmm. the next day. And I work both with speakers and singers and uh, it, it makes such a tremendous difference when we can feel that confidence, when we can f really feel that we can actually express and uh, both physically then that we don't have problems, mm -hmm. but then also the, uh, of course, the the confidence issue and actually be able to present the way we want to present. And we do have these things inside of the larynx here, inside of the throat that we call vocal cords or sometimes known as vocal folds. Mm -hmm. And when they vibrate, they create sound. So yep. what we really want to be able to do is how can we set them in motion? We can develop them so they become stronger and with less effort. And that's the freedom, you know. Yeah, I, you know that I have a program that's called Sing with Freedom, and there's a reason it's called that, and not Sing with Restrictions. <laughs> you know, or even Sing with Strength. It's not about the strength, is it? No, no. But but like, there are muscles involved here, yeah. so we can develop that strength. And often we, we're not taught about that. We just do the way we've always done. Exactly. I think everything is a developed skill. Well, what did you learn that made this, uh, you know, what did you discover that led you into this world? Well, I'm originally from Sweden, mm -hmm. so I worked as a performer there. And a lot of, as a matter of fact, what I do, I also draw from my sports background. I'm very fascinated in the human body the anatomy of the body, how we can access muscles in an effective way. Mm -hmm. I'm also very, very fascinated about the performance aspects of it as a performer. And when I became a performer on stage, I, I drew a lot of how to perform as a, at your peak when it matters the most as an athlete. Yeah. So a lot of that is embedded in what I do. How do you get into the mindset of actually performing when the pressure is on? Um, but also then the, the, the mental ability to learn effectively. Well, what are a couple of tips we could share with the listeners that would give them a, a leg up on better vocal technique? Maybe being aware of, are we working hard to be heard? Mm -hmm. Do we tend to hold back? What's our tendency? Um, which may not be so easy to become aware of. And that's why I've developed sort of a process. We go through that and then we go, uh-huh, mm -hmm, okay, yeah, oh, I realize I use much more effort to do that. And with singers, I use much more effort to sing those high notes. So if you feel that you have to work hard to um, be heard in a loud environment or sing high notes mm -hmm. or to get a deeper voice, at least be aware that it's not just how you are. You can actually develop it. Let's shift subjects for a second. And let's explore your business model. How did you take this expertise that you had developed and structure it in such a way that you could craft a business? Because your business is thriving. You're, you're on a roll here. Well, it's, it's been going great. What can I say? So I develop, developed this site called thesingingzone.com, which is more for singers, although mm -hmm. actually a lot of speakers have done it, and I'm now in pre-production on creating a specific course for speakers. Good. But this singing course, I, I came up with that because when I was coaching one-on-one, -on -one, most people came to me and said, wow, this is weird, this is different. <laughs> yeah, it's not, the, not what they taught me in school. <laughs> right, right. But, um, but it worked. It had tremendous results for a lot of people, both for, for people who had voice problems to actually heal problems, but also to help people get to the next level. So I needed to figure out how can I share this with other people who may not be able to see me in person. Mm -hmm. And thanks to the internet, the development of the internet, 
when video now is possible, that's really when I realized I can actually do this because I did not want to create an audio program. And that's why that free video that you talked about that yeah. I have on my site, I talk about that because singers are so used to using their ears. Mm -hmm. So I'm shifting that so we can actually develop that kinesthetic awareness, the muscle awareness. So when video came along, I decided, okay, I'm going to create a program. And I was really working hard. How can I do it so that people will have a similar experience from watching videos that they would otherwise have in private? Right. So I'm trying to create it in that way. So it feels like you're in a private session with me. And, and I'm very grateful that that's what a lot of people have reacted to. So that. you've built a, um, like a library of, of courses, mini courses? Lessons. Yeah, so I, I have the Sing with Freedom program, which is yep. a DVD set, a four DVD set. And then what I also have then is for people who want to continue the training beyond that, I have the Singing Zone, which is a monthly training program. Mm -hmm. And I, I really consider it to be exponential learning because when we, it's not about learning one more thing and one more thing and one more thing in a linear fashion. It really is about digging deeper, getting greater awareness, creating your ability. So then that every month, that's that's my um, job to make sure that people have breakthroughs every yeah. month in, in a certain well, way. And I love the, the concept of exponential learning because when you do learn whatever the fundamental skill is, your capacity for learning has expanded. That's right. And your capacity for expression has expanded. That's right. So that's what happens now and that's what I'm also so grateful for. The, the, the comments that people get from the training has been absolutely amazing. And what happens is that well, every time with learning is that the more we learn, the, the one, more wonderful results we get, of yeah. course, and the more fun it becomes also. So that then the very first lesson in Sing with Freedom, in the Sing with Freedom program, which, which can be quite, uh, have a big impact on people right there. Uh -huh. But even after that, when they've worked for a while, then they realize, wow, how important it was what we did in lesson one. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole idea of effective learning, in my opinion. So, yeah, so it's been amazing. Now, I actually had customers from 117 countries. Wow, 117 countries. And you mentioned a while ago how many people are on your email list. Yes, it's over 300,000 people. And a daily uh, sign-up? On, on my newsletter, uh, get, getting about 1,200 to 1,500 people a day wow. who are actually opting in. Not visiting. I'm not yeah. talking about visitors. I'm talking people who actually opt in and become... Uh, subscribers to the newsletter and then a, a huge amount of those actually do the program and the most fantastic thing for me is the feedback and that's what I spent as far as when I started it that was all I was concerned about making it as good as possible the training as effective as possible and I've never asked for a testimonial people spontaneously write to me and then I ask them for permission to post it on the website and sure. some of them are on the website there but that's the gratification for me that's 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 why I love doing this. Thank you, Pear, for sharing your insights with us. It's wonderful to discover ways that we can use this instrument of ours more creatively and in a longer-lasting, more healthy way. In the last issue of VOE, I introduced you to Kevin McNulty. Kevin's helping me out as a special correspondent for VOE, and he's exploring the art of storytelling. We heard his report about the Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, where he compiled all those amazing speeches and interviews. And I wanted to share something a little different in this issue. Instead of having an interview, I wanted to take you inside one of the actual speeches given at that festival. So you can hear for yourself how storytelling is indeed a parallel universe to the speaking world that we know. When you think of storytelling and speaking as these two genres, who else is better to learn from than our own past president, Jeannie Robertson? Yes, she was the opening keynoter at the Storytelling Festival. Let's listen to her in action as she shares how she finds content for her own stories. But we know that we're going to look for humor every day and looking with each other is a real good way to start. We have humor buddies that come to us and say, we found something funny and we thought of you. <laughs> Well, isn't that better than I heard some gossip and I thought of you? If you go on vacation and you see something funny, yes, please do call me. I also look around at my friends for humor, and you can do the same. Don't point toward anybody in here. 
And that might let me go to tell you about my friend Norma. She's my bestest friend. Y'all know Norma Rose. By the way, it's funny when you talk to people nowadays because of YouTube and internet and all this. People come up to me and say, you left out a line. You left out... Does this happen? Well, are there any other storytellers in here? This happened, they'll come up and say, I think you reversed that line, that particular line on me. My bestest friend, and I know, I know, don't y'all come up here and tell me afterwards, you can't have the word bestest. Because didn't we learn it this way? Good, better, best. Never let it rest till the good get better and the better get best. For you younger people that think, what in the world is this gibberish? It, you can't be better than best because best is best. But women have ruined the word best, especially southern women. This is one of my very best friends. This is my best friend since elementary school. This is my very best friend that I knew from growing This is, and she used to be my bestest friend right over there, but I don't even speak to her anymore. <laughs> be in the grocery store talking to a woman and see one of my friends go by and say, come over here, come over here, y'all come over here, I want you to meet one of my very best friends, Sue. What'd you say your last name is? <laughs> so my bestest friend and I, and her name is not just Norma, it is Norma Rose. We always give our little girls two names in case they want to be in a pageant. Norma Rose and I were talking not too long ago, and she said to me, well, where are you going to speak next month, Jeannie? And I said, all the places I was going to go. And then one of them happened to be Las Vegas. She said, Las Vegas? You're going to go to Las Vegas and speak again? I never have been to Las Vegas, Jeannie. And I said, I didn't know that. I've got plenty of airline miles. Let me call the client who booked me, and I'll, I'll see if I can get the cheaper rooms on the front end or on the back end, and we can go out there and stay a while and have a good time. She said, well, what do they do out there? Don't they just gamble? And I said, there is a little of that. <laughs> but... The truth is that Bill Cosby has a show there that night. And I think, although I haven't seen from this weekend, but the one I saw last night, the storyteller was excellent, Donald Davis. Ooh, he was excellent. But I love, I think, two of the what you would call celebrity storytellers, Bill Cosby and Bob Newhart, are two of the best. I said, Norma Rose, Bill Cosby has a show there that week. We could go see him. She said, well, I would love to go, Jeannie, and I don't mean that you can't gamble. She said, if you want to gamble, it's okay if you gamble because you're Methodist. <laughs> You're Methodist. Methodists can gamble, but I'm a Baptist. <laughs> and Baptists don't gamble. I said, well, Norma Rose, have they told all of them yet? So we went to Las Vegas and we got in our hotel. She had a little camera and she was just taking pictures of everything she saw. Oh, it is a people-watching place. We got over to the hotel where we were going to see the Cosby Show, got our tickets, had dinner, and still had an hour before we went in to see the show. And I said, now listen, Norma Rose, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go in this casino and I'm going to get $20 worth of quarters. And then you're going to come in there with me and we're going to play the quarter slot machine. You've got to see what the true Vegas is. She said, Jeannie, don't you remember I told you I don't gamble? I'll just sit in the lobby. No, no, you're going to go in there and doing that. And anyway, that's why I picked the quarter slot machines. The slot machines are not gambling. <laughs> the word gamble means you have a chance. We went in, and it took a little time, but I actually found a couple of the old-timey slot machines where you had to put the quarters in your hand, get your hand dirty. Put the quarters in yourself and pull that lever that everybody else in the world's been pulling. See, it's all computerized now. 
You sit down, put your purse down here, a door opens up and an arm comes out and grabs. <laughs> you, you can't win. I said, Norma Rose, this won't. I said, if we by some chance would have in all five quarters and we would hear the thing go and three sevens came up and the bells and whistles went off. Just sit down and let me explain to you. This is this is not hitting the jackpot. This is let me put it in words you understand. This would be a miracle. <laughs> so we got with the old timing machine. I said, pull it over here. Now here's how you do it. And I put a quarter in and I pull the lever and wouldn't you know it. The thing went doo 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 doop, and two quarters came out. <laughs> Norma Rose said, <gasps> You doubled your money. <laughs> if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't believe it. You have won at the casino. And I said, No, 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 no. I'm not going to say that I have won at the casino. The only way that I would win at this casino is if we picked up these two quarters, got our purses, got up, and walked out of here. <laughs> and never in our lifetime went back into a casino again. Then on my tombstone in Graham, you put, here lies the woman who won in the casino. <laughs> but Norma Rose, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna put these two quarters back in as fast as I can get them and pull that lever. And of course, we lost it. She said, that's what I've always heard. Win a little bit, get addicted, lose it all, lose it all. <laughs> I said, oh, come on, we're just having a good time. And we did, and we played, and we'd win and play. Now, you know you're going to win some, but you're going to lose. You're going to eventually, this is the way they make their living. And it goes down. And after a while, pulling and talking and looking at people and so forth, Norma Rose said, is your right arm getting tired? I said, my right arm? She said, from pulling the lever, it looks tired. Move it over and let me pull the lever a little while. <laughs> no. No, Norma Rose. I'm not going to do that, Norma Rose, because I'm not going back to North Carolina having turned you on to a life of gambling. <laughs> she said, why don't you call it like it is? It's a good Baptist helping a Methodist with a tired arm. Now move it over. <laughs> Put the money in, pull she would, oh, we were having the best time. And finally, I said, we're about to give out our money, but we've got to get to the show anyway. I thought she was picking up her purse. She came back and said, I found three dirty quarters in the bottom of my purse. I'm going to put them right here. They're yours. They're not mine anymore. Do with them whatever you want to. <laughs> of course, I put them in, and we lost them. And then I said, Norma Rose, we got one, two, three. We got five quarters left. We haven't played five. Let's go for it. And we put the five quarters in, and she pulled it, and our lives changed. <laughs> Three sevens, zip, 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 and then bells are, ding, 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 and above all this racket, I could hear Norma Rose shouting, what are you going to do with your half of the money? <laughs> Well, there's storytelling, and then there are storytellers. And Jeannie is one of those naturally gifted people who can not only tell stories, but she makes them really come to life. Listen to Jeannie once again and notice how she sets up each point, how she makes the dialogue really feel real, and how she explains things to you throughout the story. These are skills you and I can learn even if we don't have the natural gifts of a Jeannie Robertson but we can all become better storytellers. One of the continuing features of VOE this year will be Music of the Month. At the Philadelphia Convention of NSA, I had the opportunity to hear Allison Shapira perform her work titled All Along. Allison is a skilled singer and songwriter. Here's her song titled All Along. Cambridge Street And I moved in with some good friends Who had a room just for me And I bought a round trip ticket All of Europe for me to see Back 
packed my life into a suitcase and left Boston by the sea. And everywhere I turned to, the answer was the same. Forget about your worries, just get up on that plane. There I was in an airport bar with my backpack and guitar, saying this is who you are. we've all heard the term summit used to describe a special meeting. We've probably attended a few. But should we hold one of our own? Well, I caught up with board member and veteran speaker Ford Sakes at his business summit in Las Vegas to find out exactly what is a summit, how does it work, and how do you know if you should hold one for your own business? 
questions, I would start with looking at your value propositions and looking at how people want to consume your information. For me, business summits have been great because they're my market. So I like to do a summit. They're usually a little bit smaller. You can Summits can be any size. It can be from six to 600, I guess you could call a summit. My summits are typically under 50 people. They become more of a mini mastermind. It's a great way to build trust and credibility, to offer tremendous value, to be able to allow the group to talk at a confidential setting where they can share information in a group of 10 or 20 that they might not want to share if there was 50 or 100 people in the room that they didn't know. So it's a little bit more confidential. And that also gives you the opportunity to build a strong relationship with those attendees that then can become long-term clients. Isn't it really just another word for a seminar? It really is just another word for a seminar, uh, a seminar, boot camp, workshop, mastermind weekend. You can put whatever title resonates most effectively with your target market. So it might be a generational thing, uh, different types of positions may feel more comfortable going to a business summit mm -hmm. as opposed to a business seminar. If they're a CEO, from an ego's perspective, they might think, well, I'm going to a summit as opposed to uh, a seminar. Now, this is not a technical definition. This is my definition from Ford at PrimeConcepts.com. But, but we're attending one right now, and it's got a very different feel from a typical seminar. This is a special forum or, or environment you've created. What are the moving parts that make this work? Well, the moving parts that make it work are first the pre-event assessment where you send it out to the attendees to make sure you clearly understand the goals and objectives and needs of what each person wants. That helps you craft a compelling event so the experience is tailored towards the type of people who are going to come. So it's more learner-driven than it is leader-driven. It's more learner-driven, more needs-driven, which is, of course, how we do all of our marketing, which is what you should do, too. It's, it's, it's focused on what the customer needs, what the, what the attendee needs, and then crafting the message to do that. Just like you would for a, a keynote or a breakout session or anything else, you would identify the needs of that audience and then deliver great value. So how do I, as a speaker, determine whether it makes sense for me to hold a summit or... The, 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 the first question I would ask yourself before you do this, I think, first of all, that everybody who's a professional speaker, author, trainer, expert, or consultant should do a public seminar, at least one, to learn, one, how tough they are, and two, you'll learn a lot by putting one on. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I suggest you do it is because it gives you opportunities to find new markets that you might not find if you're just focusing on speaking for corporations and associations. But the moving parts really have to do with identifying the things up front. The moving parts of a summit start with the pre-event questionnaire, making sure you know what your needs are, arranging the hotel or the meetings facility or the meeting space, and making sure that you think about what's going to happen from the time they come in to the time that they leave. And you have to control and be responsible for everything. The room setup, the staging, making sure that they can see from all angles, making sure that there's enough room between the tables. For example, in my summit, I always ask for the big tables because it gives people more room to put their computer. It gives them more space, makes them more comfortable, but they're in the room all day. They need more room. If they're cramped in like an airplane seating, then they don't have as much uh, as fun of experience. Yeah. So you control the room, you control the lighting, you control the sound, you control the everything is your responsibility. And so that it's a whole total experience. And then what happens when they leave? What materials did they leave with? And the real big question I would say to determine whether you should have it is if you have back-end services. If you don't really have back-end services, having summits probably is a really poor way to generate revenue. It really comes down to speak, to give great value, to build the relationships, and there should be some type of next resource, product, or service in the funnel to naturally move them into. You've heard some great advice from Ford Sakes on holding a summit. Now, do they really work? I asked some of the audience members who attended his summit in order to get their opinions and see what they like best about attending a summit. The reason I enjoy attending summits is they are usually smaller and you learn not only from the presenter but you have the opportunity to ask much more personal questions than if it was a webinar or a large convention. Summits work when the presenter or presenters want you to learn and they do not want to just sell to you. They want you to walk away with content information that you can implement immediately. What I like about coming to a summit is 
clarity and focus. You get clarity about what you're trying to accomplish and the focus is strictly on that. And then everyone in that summit also works towards helping you get not only more clarity, but more best practices. There are two things that I really, really, really like about attending summits. The first thing is I can challenge the speaker as well as I can challenge everybody else in the audience to go deeper and get more information than I would have ever gotten. I find that extremely valuable and I get uh, a lot of nuggets that I wouldn't have got otherwise. The second thing I really like about summits is the opportunity for the social aspect and by getting to know people and what they do better, either I can spend additional time with them at the summit or follow up and build a relationship. And not always do you have that opportunity unless you're in a tight group setting for a few days. I find value in summits because of, people said, the group experiences that everybody shares. Not only just the knowledge you pick up from the presenter, but also how it's applied in real life. One thing I like about summits is the fact that it's application-based as opposed to education-based. Instead of ingesting information, you are applying the information and actually solving the problems while you're there. Well, there you have it. You've heard what it takes to hold a successful summit, and you've heard from the audience members about what brings them back to those summits. Some useful information for all of us. Now, who's your target market, and how can you best connect with them? We quote our fee to a client, and then they say, well, that's great, but we don't have that kind of budget. You know, that your fee's just too much for us. Is it negotiable? That's something we've all probably heard a time or two as professional speakers. And no one knows how to answer that better than Greg Williams. Greg's specialty is negotiating, and he deals with it all the time. So let's see how he handles negotiation. Usually, I will also incorporate their body language into the verbiage that they're using at that particular point in time. As an example, if they are saying something along the lines of, well, we really don't have that in the budget while leaning in towards me, mm -hmm. I'll take that as a signal that they're saying, yeah, well, maybe let's find your a way. price is, yeah, right, uh -huh. exactly, too high, but let's find a way, as opposed to them saying the exact same words and leaning away. They're actually saying, we're trying to get away from that particular situation. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to that point is, the body never lies. So sometimes the verbiage itself will say something that we are supposed to perceive that's not really reality. So you pick up all kinds of cues based on not only the way someone says it, but what their body does while they're saying it. You know, that's a, that's a part that most people overlook. And I certainly have been guilty of that. You know, I'll hear the words, but, but not tune in as acutely as you do to the body language. And that's, that's a good tip. So let's talk about negotiating overall. As speakers, what, how can you guide us in ways that will make us more effective negotiators? Well, first of all, truly understand what the client's needs are. And a negotiation doesn't start the moment that a phone rings. You usually, as a speaker, have a targeted client list that you are somewhat aware of their total environment. Their total environment actually does mean you know something about what type of environment they have for the dollars that they've spent in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But hypothetically, let's say you happen to get a call that truly is out of the blue. Again, my premise is you're always negotiating, which is my catch line also. And I say that to simply say, when you do get that call that's out of the blue, if you're not ready to negotiate, don't. Yeah, that's good advice. <laughs> don't. Absolutely. Don't wing it. No. There are times to times to give it a shot, and there are times to say, not the, right this moment. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, after all, the person that's making the call is the person that has the advantage anyway. So you don't necessarily want to put yourself at a disadvantage by stumbling along in a negotiation process simply because the phone happened to ring. By all means, also, you can use that opportunity to position yourself as someone that's just not immediately rec uh, ready at somebody's beck and call. Oh, well, let me get back to you in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you take that time to compose yourself, do some digging if you haven't already, and you gain the information that you need, the insight that will allow you to so come you, across more professionally. Yeah, you give yourself room to breathe before you start. And it, on the other side of that, I've always found it helpful when I call someone 
to say to them, is it convenient for you to talk a few minutes right now? And I put the emphasis on right now. And so that way we don't end up in a dialogue when they've got someone standing right there at their elbow saying, no, 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 Greg, I need you to sign these forms. Yeah, so I don't have their full attention. Oh, Jim, I mean, obviously you've been in the speaking game for quite a number of years. and You can one tell of the by reasons... the wrinkles or the gray hair or what? what is... <laughs> no, by is the... it that feeble voice that's giving me away? <laughs> uh, by the fact that you have so much expertise with there you. There you go. You uh... smooth talking. Okay. <laughs> but, but actually, uh, once again, you're right. In any negotiation, you have to frame the negotiation so that you can position yourself to get the most benefit out of that particular situation while allowing the other individual to perceive that he or she is getting the same amount of whatever it is that he or she is looking for. So by saying to that individual, is now a good time to speak, you're relinquishing power Mm -hmm. and you're giving that prospect or client the power that he actually needs or she needs in order to say, well, yes, go ahead. And that starts the bonding process. And in the old days, they would tell us never give away power. It was all about power, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like selling used to be. It was all about persuasion, not about really serving the person at a profit. Exactly. And and Jim, power is fluid. It's ever-changing, and it's a matter of perception. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely a matter of perception. So. How, what are the sources of power? What What are the elements in that? There have got to be moving parts if it's always changing. Oh, oh it's definitely moving yeah. parts. And power stems from the perspective of who thinks he or she has it. Because hypothetically, if you tell me, Greg, I have $1 and I'm going to give this to you and I want you to speak for the next 365 days, mm-hmm. and I might go, huh, the heck you say. Yeah. But if on the other hand you say, Greg, I have $1, I want you to speak for the next 365 days and Add on, add on, add on, add on, add on, add on. All of a sudden, you've given me the power now to say, wait a minute. Okay, I'm going to get all of these additional things. Jim, you're a fantastic guy. Sure, I'll accept your your offer. So in that particular situation, the power is exchanging back and forth. And to the degree that I want you to think, based on your mannerisms and your negotiation style, that I am subservient to you. I will be a little more. Yeah, yeah. yeah seriously. <laughs> right, yeah, right, exactly. Moment. It's fine to be in a lesser posture, the way you're talking about exactly. it. Exactly. For a moment. Exactly. But if you, if that's your entire posture, you're defeated before the game even starts. That's aren't you? right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And again, going back to the power premise, dependent upon the type of individual you're negotiating with, some people have the. The only way I can win is if you lose perspective. Mm. Well, you can allow that person in a power position to think that he or she does have you in a subservient position to the point where you actually flip the switch and the script and then you take it back. Mm -hmm. And some people will say, well, okay, I can only offer you $5,000 since we don't talk real numbers Mm -hmm. uh, to speak at this particular event. And you go, well, um," and then you find out more information about the fact that they do truly need you at that event and you can horse trade back and forth. So how important is it to know what you want going into the negotiation? Extremely important. As a matter of fact, I tell people they should bracket their expected outcomes. That's to say, at the very high level, what it is that once you get it, you know it's time to really seriously either consider backing away from the negotiation table or saying, thank you, the sale was great, that type of thing. Something that they know they can live with and something that they know under no circumstance can they actually continue to engage in the negotiation, and thus they have to back away deal from the negotiation. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Deal makers and deal breakers. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because statistics have shown the longer people stay engaged in a negotiation, the more likely they will come away with a deal that's not as advantageous to them as it otherwise would have been. Isn't that interesting? Yes. The longer they're engaged in it, the it, less they're likely to get of what they want. Exactly, because the longer they stay engaged in it, the more likely they then are to give away things that they otherwise would not have given away. Oh, I, I've got to see this deal come to fruition because I've invested too much time in it now. Thanks, Greg. That's excellent advice. I remember years ago, I used to think of negotiating as something as combative and selfish something hard, but I don't see it that way anymore. And thanks to Greg and people like him, I've learned that there are better ways. I hope Greg has helped you see things differently also. 
And now a word from our president, Ron Carr. In the early 80s, I was an EMT, emergency medical technician, and was a member of my local rescue squad. And I remember vividly that one night we got a call for a heart attack victim. And here I am driving the rig and we're racing towards the scene with lights and siren. Your adrenaline's pumping. You're wondering what you're going to see when you get to the scene. We pull up to the scene and the captain says, you're the first man out, Ron. Move. I jump out of the rig, grab the cardiac kit. My adrenaline's pumping. I'm running up the stairs. I run through the front door and I skid to a halt halfway through the living room. And I said, where's the patient? And they point behind me to a gentleman sitting in an easy chair by the front door that I just burst through, calmly having a heart attack. And I remember looking at this individual who I just scared out of his mind. Obviously, that is not what we were trained to do. The first lesson that you get trained as an EMT is to establish calm at the scene, otherwise you lose the patient. No matter how good your skills are, If you're too emotional, the patient's dying. So I immediately turned the scene over to my second-in-command because I realized that I screwed it up and I needed somebody else to establish calm. Now, you may be asking, what does this have to do with professional speaking? Everything. For example, as entrepreneurs, how many times do we set ourselves on a course only to change direction in midstream? I believe that in business, we operate from one of two ways. We can operate from task or we can operate from purpose. Task is when we're doing our daily activities and we're really working hard, but at the end of the day, did it really support what we're after? Purpose, on the other hand, is the ability to define what it is that we really want to achieve in life and then making sure that all of our tasks support that purpose. The thing that I love most about NSA is that in this speaking profession, there are many ways from which we can succeed. There are many business models out there. The key that we all have to stay true to is the business model that makes sense for us. And that business model must support our purpose. It should be centered around our skill set, our strengths, and our passion. And NSA is working very hard to come up with training and education on all the models that our speakers are working from. For example, this coming January, we have a brand new meeting that we're doing for the first time ever, which is called Platform Profits. In that meeting, we're going to be having presenters on stage teaching you how to sell from the platform. But the program is all-encompassing. It's going to show you how to get people to the program how to make the offer from the platform, and how to back it up with back-offer systems to exceed customer expectations. And the interesting thing about this one program is that all presenters are being asked to sell to you on stage. Why? They're going to be mirroring their best practices and what it takes to sell from the platform. So if you're a speaker who either wants to increase platform sales or simply make more money from the platform when you're having trouble charging a fee, this will be the program for you. I'll be sharing you additional programming insights and new ground that we're breaking throughout the rest of the year. But for now, just ask yourself this one question. What's my purpose? Is the model that I'm using supporting that purpose? And am I staying calm and staying true to my purpose? I'll see you next month. Thank you, Ron. We appreciate your leadership. Earlier, we heard Karen Jacobson talk about how she's been successful in the field of voiceover talent and how you and I can do it as well. But Karen is also a very accomplished and published musician. She's a musical performer, a singer, and a songwriter. Let's listen to Karen perform one of her songs, The Best I Can. Remember that this was written and performed by Karen Jacobson. To be the first to say I was thinking maybe I'd surprise you I'm sure If you can handle that 
Thank you very much, Karen Jacobson, for sharing that song with us. And thank you for the interview you gave us on voiceovers as well. I want to express our gratitude this month to Matt Forger, Karen Jacobson, Pear Bristow, Jeannie Robertson, Kevin McNulty, Allison Shapira, Ford Sakes and his audience, Greg Williams, President Ron Carr, and I'd also like to thank the team that brings you Voices of Experience. The experts at the NSA headquarters who make this happen, Rocky Heyer at Master DVD who puts it all together, our great friends at High Point University's Nito R. Kubain School of Communication who help in the editing and production of each VOE. The final segment of VOE each month is noted as Meet Me Backstage. And I'd like for you to feel that this is your time to walk back behind the curtain with me, Jim Cathcart, your chairman. And let me know what you're interested in, what you like about VOE, what you would like to see more of, how we could change it to make it even more relevant for you. I'll keep listening to you, and I hope you'll keep listening to us. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.